My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Japanese comedian, filmmaker Hitoshi Matsumoto. Now, Will, the thing about comedy when you're talking about global comedy is that it usually doesn't travel that much. Would you agree with that? Uh, by and large, yes. Other than Robert Benini, of course, who uh, is... Roberto. Roberto Benini, the world's comedian. Robert Benini is what they would call him if it was like the 1970s. He, he directed Italian exploitation movies. They, they would change his name to, uh, to Robert Benign. And as you may see there, Will said a joke and I did not laugh because I'm telling you guys right now for this episode, I am not going to laugh. And what's the reason for that, Justin? The reason is Hitoshi Matsumoto, while he is not a worldwide known filmmaker, he is very popular in Japan. And one of the things that has crossed the border is his series Documental. The idea of putting a bunch of comedians in a room and none of them are allowed to laugh for six hours. And that is the contest. Now, I came over to your place a couple weeks ago and you were watching this. I think it was on Amazon Prime. Yep, that's where it is. And I was uh, confused by it because I think I came in halfway through, didn't really see the setup. By the way, I'm going to be taking this no laugh pledge as well. So we'll see if one of us laughs a uh, gigantic hand comes out and smacks us in the face. Which is keeping with the spirit of this Japanese comedian is that it's not only the no laughing, the torture of it all, but it's also the absurd. So what I saw on that episode that you were watching was a bunch of people puttering around a room. Several of them were in various states of undress. I think they had been in the room for hours at that point. Many of their underwears were stained with their excretions. Periodically, somebody would enter the room often in a bizarre costume and they would mug and they would do silly faces. See, I'm already having trouble not laughing because I'm remembering this now. Uh, the big hand's not going to come out and hit me, folks. There's an idea that we have in our head of like the Japanese game show. And a lot of it is rooted in Matsumoto, this kind of absurd, wait, is this the show? Is this what we're supposed to be watching? Will just gave uh, a little chuckle. Boom. Yeah. Oh, I just got hit. And uh, you get a yellow card for that one. I think that Matsumoto, when you dive deep into his work, and we'll talk a little bit like the setup of where he came from, but oh boy, is this an intimidating topic. Like digging through the Wikipedias of this guy's career, who some people have said he is one of the most popular Japanese comedians essentially ever, that he's been doing this since the 80s, and he's continually reigned champion as, you know, he keeps doing multiple shows every week, people know who he is, and his big bits are legendary. There are some other Japanese filmmakers like this, people who are only known in the West as filmmakers, like Takeshi Kitano, Nagisa Oshima, who directed In the Realm of the Senses and many other great films. These are people who uh, filmmaking is just one part of their vast media empire. I think Takeshi Kitano at one point had a show on TV every day of the week, I want to say. Uh Oshima as well, uh, very prolific in pretty much all the arts. I am not super familiar with Japanese television, but friends of mine who watch it obsessively or who have lived in Japan say that it's almost like a communal experience, that every show is a panel show of people commenting on what they're watching. Even like a lot of Matsumoto variety shows, you will see a gag and then in the corner there will appear uh, someone reacting to it, that it's kind of these personalities that everybody goes to to see again and again and again even when Matsumoto was making some of the movies that we're talking about he had five shows on every week 
That is bananas. And I think like Takeshi Kitano, his filmmaking is not especially popular in Japan. I'll give a little bit of background about Hitoshi Matsumoto because I think it's important to how the movies come out. Like the fact that he started a comedy troupe with his partner uh, Masatoshi Hamada called Downtown. And almost all of the shows that they've made have Downtown and then another um, descriptor. So any Japanese words I'm going to say for comedic purposes... I will mispronounce terribly. Because Justin's also going to try to make me laugh, because this is part of the challenge of this game. Oh, we didn't talk about that. Well, I'm saying it right now. Oh, man. Uh, eh. Podcasting is not a visual medium, but we're making silly faces at each other and just hoping, hoping that it doesn't cause the big hand to come out and slap us. Oh, what's that? Ernest is coming in the room and he's going to do some shtick? Oh, shit. (laughs) I just got slapped a million times. Staring at me, trying not to laugh. Just because your Ernest was so bad, it was like, I'm like, is it the cookie monster? Laughing at my own Ernest impression. My God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. He got slapped. Uh, I got it yellow card i think that like humor especially in these type of tv shows it never comes from the big gag it often comes from the little aside the contradiction and that's what's really funny especially in the movies that matsumoto makes but so these tv shows if you've seen any like wild japanese gif or game show you've probably seen matsumoto in some form there's a gif of him as a chef like yelling really excitedly that goes around and there's also probably one of the funniest things that i've ever seen which is uh no reaction pie hell now did you ever see a clip of this will no but i'm struggling not to laugh at the title the concept is there's these games that happen on these shows. And if you lose a game, you are punished. And these punishments are usually the funniest things that come out of these. So No Reaction Pie Hell, Matsumoto has to go through a normal day in a house following instructions that are given to him through a loudspeaker. And as this is happening, there are a number of people with cream pies that smack him in the face and in the body, no matter what he does. So for example... He will go, it's time to read the newspaper. He will pick up the newspaper and then will be hit with 30 cream pies in the face and he cannot react to it. And that's what the joke is, is he goes, huh, seems like uh, it's going to be sunny tomorrow. 30 cream pies in the face. He's literally on the toilet and they're just hitting him in the dick with cream pies. Oh man, I am struggling not to laugh at this. Let me tell you. And it is, I think like 40 minutes. So it's endurance a lot with these things that that's where the humor really comes out of. And so I'm not going to speak too much of his television shows behind that. So No Reaction Pie Hell, you can watch that if you want an example of the kind of comedy stuff. There's one called 24-Hour Tag, which this seems right up Will's alley. Matsumoto's comedy partner and a bunch of the other people on the show are in a giant gymnasium. And at random, someone in a leather outfit pops out of the ground and just beats them up until a bell goes off and they go back in. And they're like in a gimp suit. And it takes 24 hours and it happens every couple minutes, basically. And when you hear that, you're like, well, that's pretty funny, I guess. But man, when you see it, it, the special is two hours long. It sounds like a torture exercise, as so many Japanese game shows are. Anyway, enough of this TV shows. Let's get to his cinema. The first of his movies that I became aware of, because it was a minor hit on the festival circuit, was 2007's Big Man Japan. Now... Something you could possibly accuse Matsumoto of is making one joke movie, which wouldn't be entirely accurate because jokes are multifaceted things. Uh, there are sometimes jokes within jokes, but uh, Big Man Japan, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what it is. 
This is a mockumentary that follows around a man named Masaru. Uh, Like most of Matsumoto's protagonists, he's meek and mild. There's nothing special about him. He lives a very boring life. He's respected by no one, except in this case, he has the power to grow to 30 meters tall and fight giant monsters. And to do that, it hurts a lot. He has to get in a giant diaper before he grows. And like a lot of Matsumoto characters in these movies, one of the main jokes is he's wearing a very fake wig that he is constantly pushing away from his eyes. That is the punchline to most of the scenes in this movie, because this movie, as Will was kind of describing at the beginning, it doesn't really have any like big jokes or big punchline moments. It's the banality of this situation that is what's funny about it. Right. So Masaru is the guardian of Japan. He comes from a long line of guardians of Japan. Unlike his father and grandfather, he is regarded with indifference by the people of Japan. Uh, Nobody respects him. Nobody respects the institution of giant monsters anymore. It feels like his manager is pulling a fast one on him, that he barely has enough money to cover rent while she's driving around in new cars. He fights giant monsters regularly, but the TV broadcasts don't pick up very high ratings. He has logos all over his body when he's a giant monster in hoping to get some more sponsorship money. Uh, I think this movie is very funny. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it's funny is because of how long it sometimes goes without something funny happening, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, the movie is 113 minutes long. It takes maybe 15 or 20 minutes for him to turn into a giant for the first time. And Those first 15 or 20 minutes are courageously boring. And I do feel that, like a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today, that we are losing stuff in translation. That culturally, we cannot understand whose faces are on these monsters. And I feel there's a lot of humor out of that as well, other than Riki Takeyushi, the star of Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive, who appears on a giant foot. I also think there's humor in the idea that, you know giant monster movies, kaiju films, which were so popular in Japan, were probably at a low ebb of popularity when this movie came out in 2007. So, you know, it would have had a certain charge in Japan that's like, oh yeah, this is representative of so many post-war institutions that have uh, fallen by the wayside over the years. And these giant monster sequences in the movie, the creatures look absurd. He is just a big guy in a diaper with his hair in the air and he has a club. And it's also shot with like CG in the most realistic style he could probably do at the time. It's like slightly primitive. It's kind of like CGI that looks like claymation, if you know what I mean. The creature designs are really funny. His design is really funny. You can imagine that if there could be such a thing as a 30 meter tall giant man who saves Japan, who's not respected, you know, this is the design. Uh, I just, sorry, I just got slapped because I did a little bit of a chuckle. Imagine that when Will slapped, it's me reaching across the table and slapping Will. Because that's in the style of these comedians. That Matsumoto, when he was with his partner, he was usually the one that was like slapped at the end of sentences. The dryness of the tone is very funny. In between the monster scenes, we see him riding public transit. We see him ordering noodles. We see him at his shitty home, which has been vandalized. Because he ran away from a fight when a monster was beating up on him. That's right, which is also a very funny scene. Very funny scene. Um, Um, And there's a sort of Buster Keaton-esque stoicism to it. 
and like the sheer dryness of the tone is funny the absence is funny you're waiting for these big monster sequences and when they arrive they are almost as dry as what has come before that like one of the jokes is one of the monsters has like a comb over that he keeps like throwing back onto his head finally at the end when we said it was a one joke movie it builds to a sequence i would have liked to see this movie in theaters because i cannot imagine how hard it killed when there is suddenly a twist and all this like kind of CGI monster stuff that we've been watching the entire picture switches to basically looking like Ultraman. It turns into all of a sudden a Japanese monster TV show and everything is super dynamic. Everybody's in rubber suits. Matsumoto is wearing a hilarious prosthetic suit that represents his CGI self. And I love the way that he lays in all these little details when that switch happens, that suddenly there is like a car of people that are following this new gang of Ultraman that show up. There's a blind woman holding a pendant in a hospital and it's just all these like weird little details that you see this Ultraman family show up and then the joke of the movie this big monster that Matsumoto could not defeat that he ran away from just gets horribly beaten for 10 minutes so it's a very funny movie it's a long movie and i think it requires hooking into a very particular tone and finding mm -hmm. that tone funny but if you can uh highly recommend like if you go in expecting monster movie thrills you will be disappointed but if you go in expecting like a very dry experience there is a lot to enjoy here now his second film symbol i was a little bit surprised that you hadn't seen it but maybe that's just because i have midnight madness brain because i saw this when it played midnight madness yeah i mean I, I wanted to see it when it played midnight madness and then i didn't and i just never got around to it this may be one of the most riotously funny experiences i've had in a theater like the audience was losing their mind watching this uh, so there are two storylines in this movie which are wildly different in style and tone the more memorable of the two is this very absurdist story where an unnamed man played by matsumoto himself wearing a wig wakes up in an empty white room and the wall is covered in angel dicks like a little baby angel dicks. and that when you touch them they go oh and an object appears. That's right. So something pops out of the wall. It could be a piece of sushi. It could be a book. It could be a pencil. It could be anything. And then uh, there are several hundred of these baby dicks all over the room. And you're just saying baby dicks. And it's, I'm like, mm, trying to keep a straight face thinking about it. Hang on. Sorry, folks. I have to collect myself because now I'm <gasps> thinking that. Ah, trying to keep a frown on my face, folks. He's left in this room and he has to figure out a way to get out of this room with only the supplies that come out of the wall. Look down, uh, because I'm going to laugh if I think about this movie for too long, because it's very funny. It is very funny. And the joke mechanism system that is set up, it is done so perfectly. And it's mostly about Matsumoto either being hit by something coming out of a wall or being frustrated by something coming out of the wall. There's a very funny sequence where he keeps touching one of the cherub's penises. A sushi comes out of the wall, but he doesn't have any soy sauce and he keeps hitting it. Sushi keeps coming out and he decides finally, all right, I'm going to eat the sushi. And you watch him eat that sushi every single piece. He's stuffing in his mouth in the way that you don't enjoy something. And then finally he hits one of them and soy sauce comes out and he kind of stares at it for a second and he goes, I don't want it anymore. Very funny. Now there's a second story in this movie, which uh, its relation to that story does not become clear until the end. What a commitment to the bit. It's set in Mexico. It's done in a much more realistic style. There aren't a lot of jokes in it. And it's the story of an aging Mexican wrestler and his family. And he's going to go fight like a uh, top 
tier guys that everybody think that he will be completely broken by them. And I mean, uh, you know, I'll be honest. Are you like, did the movies get mixed up somehow? Well, like, what's going definitely on? Definitely when I turned it on, I thought, do I have the right movie? Is this a different movie called Symbol? Whenever you're in that Mexico portion, you're thinking, can I get back to the room with uh, with Matsumoto again? It is so committed, though. And the payoff is so absurd. And that, like, did he write his way backwards from that? Like, how did he get to that point? I mean, it's it's just a miracle that this movie exists, that mm. someone would make a movie like this. Someone would follow this through to its conclusion. It did do pretty well on the festival circuit because it is kind of like an audience movie of people that are willing to be challenged by it. I don't know if it did get a North American release. Maybe it did. I'm thinking back in my video store days and I just see a bootleg that was sitting there forever. So I watched another Matsumoto movie. I think his most recent movie as well called R1. Now, that title is a joke about the Japanese rating system. In uh, America, of course, the adults-only rating is NC-17. In Japan, it's called R-18. And so this movie's called R-100. No one under 100 could watch it. Now, I should say before we get to this one, the film that he made right after Symbol, I feel like Symbol kind of like got his juices going. He made a movie right the next year. And what's interesting about it is he doesn't star in it. It stars a nobody who never acted in anything before. He just worked at a bar. And the concept is almost like his ethos as a comedian, which is this guy, he's abandoned his samurai post. And now he has to make a young emperor laugh. And if he doesn't, he will have to commit suicide at the end of 30 days. Literally 30 gags, one after the other, as the people just sit there stone-faced watching him. That movie, while very interesting, I don't know if it completely works. The fact that he casts an unknown makes it very interesting. And it's ending, I mean... Again, it feels like Matsumoto worked his way back from it to get to that point. I don't know if I agree with the places that it goes. Uh, I kind of wish I watched that one instead. And R100, man, I am not a fan of this one. Yeah, I mean, I'm always hoping to disagree with you on this podcast to bring a little productive tension, to bring a little exciting friction. But I also had trouble with this one, too. R100, the main character, once again, is a meek and timid man. This one works in a department store, and he is seeking a little bit of excitement in his dull life. So he goes to visit a dominatrix. He doesn't just sign up for one session. He signs up for a sort of all-you-can-eat dominatrix experience where at random points in his life, at any point in his life, a dominatrix is going to come and beat the shit out of him. Now, that sounds like a funny concept. So you could accuse all of his movies of being repetitive, but this one is definitely repetitive, and I don't think the central joke is all that funny. Well, it seems like he takes enjoyment out of this, and the film takes a turn when suddenly the dominatrixes go too far, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's not that funny. So if you're not down with the central joke and with the the twist joke, I mean, that's the problem with making a one-joke movie. Mm. You'll, uh, oh god. I made myself laugh again. And this is committed to the bit, too, is that, like, out of all of his films, it is incredibly brown the entire time. I hated looking at it. Yeah, not fun to look at. And it gets very wacky at the end, but it's a little too late. There's also, I mean, lest I say it's a one-joke movie, there is actually a second joke because it's a meta movie. It keeps cutting to a screening room where the movie we're watching is being projected to its producers. And we find out the director is a very old man and the producers keep going into the lobby and saying, what is with this movie? Uh, what What is he doing? I'd be fascinated to know if this was always in the construction of the movie or is it something that came in the post-production of the film? I gotta say it's not that clever. It feels like we've done that before and it doesn't really add anything other than 
been like, you only get it when you're 100 years old. It's like, all right, I guess. And the like, joke doesn't build. It doesn't build. It ends like with an all-out war with the dominatrixes. And yeah, it's just not that funny. That's the, that's the problem with it. And I don't know if he had an off day. Or... But hey, he's playing a pretty, pretty high-wire game here, making these movies that are one brilliant joke mm-hmm. and sustaining on a particular tone. Is there any other North American filmmakers who work in that way that you can think of? You know, I mean, this is a completely different filmmaker, but watching Big Man Japan, I was sort of reminded of Antonioni. Mm-hmm. Oh, whoops. I have to slap myself again. Will is basically just laughing at his own jokes. I am. I'm laughing. I'm laughing at the idea of comparing him to Antonioni because obviously he has very little in common, except I look at a movie like The Passenger and very little happens in it. It gives you very little in terms of character and plot to follow with. And so you have the tone of the thing. I do think that it's interesting to consider these movies. While I said that me and Will are not that familiar with his comedy, it's obviously very mainstream and like pleasing and out there, very physical. You can look at some bits and if you want to find his TV comedy, his shows are translated every week on Reddit. Someone does subtitles for the entire TV. That's how popular he is. Wow. And so his movies seem to be an extension of like, okay, if I'm going to make a movie, it needs to be different than this. So I'm going to try to focus in on these one idea and explore it. And I think that's fascinating because movies, oftentimes when you're dealing with comedies, they're like, all right, I want to get the audience to laugh as hard as possible, especially that it's like Japan's biggest comedian doing this. The movies also don't feel like they're the work of a guy who only makes movies or is putting everything he has into the movie. They're sort of like, here's an idea that I have. Here's a funny idea that I have, and I will make a movie out of it. You know, I have a vast career with which to explore ideas, and this is just one avenue. Like, these movies kind of don't need to exist. They're not burning with that sort of passion, but they're sort of, they're, what they're burning with is the idea of wouldn't it be funny to make a movie out of this? Kind of almost the Moturn idea of like, wouldn't it be funny if, you know, I made a movie with me and my uncle as cops? I also do think that it's very interesting, Matsumo just reading about his career, that he is a guy that is only comedy at this point. Like he and his partner, uh, Masatoshi Hamada, who is also known as like Hamada the sadist, because he's always slapping Matsumoto. Matsumoto is often the butt of the jokes. And both of them do not speak to each other anymore, unless they're on stage. Uh, Matsumoto, I watched a documentary about him. Basically, his only friend is like friends that he had back in his childhood. So he was completely hermetically sealed. And comedy is the only thing that he lives right now. Well, I'll be his friend yeah will be his friend he came to toronto when he showed r100 and basically the joke that he did on stage was he said blue jays everybody cheered and then he would not stop saying blue jays and be like blue jays trying not to laugh yes me too i just took in a deep breath but that was not a chuckle or a laugh if you take anything out of this other than seeing the movies that we very much enjoyed i would say symbol number one because i think that is the one that made me guffaw the most easiest and also go see no reaction pie hell just type it in it'll pop up right at the top of google and just sit there and get ready to laugh as per usual you can send us letters can i laugh now yeah you're allowed to laugh okay ha 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 oh that's a classic will laugh that i enjoy You can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Alexander Roth. And it goes, hey, Justin and Will, as someone who doesn't have the Criterion channel, it's been worrying to see how much it influences what people are watching and how their catalog has become de facto canon. It seems to me that taste-making industrial complex like New York 
film critics, has more control than ever. Should a company really have that much influence? Can we trust their good intentions when they, at the end of the day, just want to sell stuff? I think that's a great question. It's a question I think about quite a bit because I do think, uh, you know, I like Criterion both as a channel and as a Blu-ray label. Wait, what's that? Justin includes films that come to the Criterion? Ah, uh, I'm a big fan of the Criterion label. <laughs> I can get behind them, no problem. I will say that I do think that disproportionate weight is put on the company. Like, I don't know, you see people all the time say like, oh, this movie got a Criterion, like it's in the Criterion Collection. Why isn't this movie in the Criterion Collection? You remember when uh, Criterion put out a Melvin Van Peebles box set, which is wonderful. They did a great job on it. Terrific. But like Vinegar Syndrome put out Sweet Sweetback's Badass no one song cared. two years ago and no one cared. And it's like Criterion doesn't have a monopoly on great films and it is it is a business like when people say people freak out they're like oh i can't believe this netflix movie is getting a criterion release when so many worthy films haven't gotten one well yeah if they have a deal with netflix exactly and that's that, why they're putting it out that's all it is that's all it is i mean that's sad um we did a whole episode on the Criterion yeah, collection hundreds of episodes ago yeah i'll just say that uh, i think the criterion channel is a good thing i think it's great that all of those movies are more accessible than they've ever been and i think that they're also expanding the kind of t- taste and films that they're sharing like they just shared an indie film called colma the musical that like no one has ever heard of but i've been a big fan for like a decade and now anyone listening to this can go to the criterion channel and watch it that's amazing i remember years ago you and i were at a used bookstore in toronto and we were looking at like the table of novels and it was just like you know all, all the classics your hemingways your faulkner's your virginia wolves or whatever and i thought isn't it a shame that something like this doesn't exist for movies like it's difficult to watch you know, the Bergmans, the Fellinis, the the Kurosawas, the, the canon, because it's not on Netflix and it's expensive to watch otherwise. Wouldn't it be, you know, it should be, it should be as easy as this. Now, can you get frustrated with the kind of critical voice that is doing it? Yes, but there will always be those puppet masters that are controlling, you know, what is deemed important on these channels. You know, I would say that like the Criterion Channel is a good thing. It's done a lot of good. If I have an issue with film culture is that there should be more good things. Mm. Well, and listen, more recognition for good things. You're sending things. a letter to the Important Cinema Club. You're already doing the right thing. We're going to try to introduce you to more movies that you wouldn't find on the Criterion Channel. I feel like I'm still in the frame of mind of like not laughing or talking in this very like It's because I'm way. not laughing. That's why. I'm trying to commit to the bit until the end. But you're allowed to laugh. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to commit to the bit too then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh man. We're going to do a post show about new Ernest films. It's going to be real difficult, but we'll, we'll get through it. Hey, Vern. Um, not smiling. I'm just looking at this letter and considering it. It is a complicated thing because there is, there has to be like gatekeeping in some way and anyone usually suggesting you movies usually they just want to sell you stuff so it's a difficult balance but uh, do you have a criterion subscription yes i do i just watched high and low by akira kurosawa this week which i'd never seen before i gotta say that a lot of the movies that we talk about like i'm like oh where am i gonna find a copy of oh it's on the criterion channel so that's really easy absolutely and uh, the letter continues as for episode suggestions it would be interesting if you could do an episode on tv movies what's been written on them is skin deep but i think they should be of interest for people who like to talk about termite art auteur theory and b pictures critics usually look down on anything that was made to be shown on the big screen but now everyone is streaming anyway that is us who don't live close to a repertory theater so shouldn't the tv movie have a place in history as well keep up the good work out i should say there is one person who made it her life mission to talk about tv movies and that's amanda rays that she wrote a book about them uh, i don't have it in front of me i think it's like don't go in the house or something like that where she talks about horror tv movies and companies like kino have been putting a lot of tv movies out on blu-ray there was just re- a recent one that i talk about on the base 
street video podcast. I don't remember. It's like Space Force Delta One, the plane that couldn't land. And I just love that subtitle. I personally don't have that much of an affinity for TV movies just because they are often very regimented unless you're talking about someone like Spielberg. Yeah, I think this is a great idea for an episode. I'm intimidated by it because there are so many TV movies. Uh, I don't know where to start. And the most obvious one to start with is duel i think that's such an outlier to what like tv movies are that like it doesn't represent you know the washed up stars kind of doing this we stuff. should talk about return to mayberry thinking about it there is one director i've always been fascinated about and I actually have a book it's an like a book-length interview with him and it's tom mclaughlin and he's interesting because he directed my favorite friday the 13th film uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. He made one more theatrical film, and then he went to TV movie land for the rest of his career. And he did, like, a movie about the DC sniper, like the guy that was in the van. And he kind of talks about what he gets out of TV movies and how a difficult kind of regimented process that it is. I wonder if there's an auteur that we could talk about. Well, there's Peter Bogdanovich, who spent his his twilight years making TV movies. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is it's there... probably bad, though. Yeah, it's tough. Like, the thing that when a lot of people work in television is that as long as you can deliver it on time and that it's competent you're good like i can't think of and maybe somebody else will could let me know on twitter of the tv movie filmmaker who was like the renegade who could still do this stuff but brought his own style to it and i think i'd just like to know if people want to write in what are the really good tv movies that aren't dual so thank you very much for that letter and our next letter is from daniel Hout, and he brings up something i am shocked we have never properly discussed he goes hey guys recently started listening to the show and i've been going through your back catalog i I really enjoyed your episode on the Three Stooges. It was nice to learn about the history of a childhood favorite of mine. I was wondering if you would be interested in doing an episode on another childhood favorite of mine, the Little Rascals R Gang. Did you know that Carl Schweitzer, famous for playing Alfalfa, died from getting shot in the dick over reward money for a missing dog? I knew that he died over something tragic. I didn't know he was shot in the dick. Anyways, I love the show and you guys really encouraged me to expand my cinephilia and learn as much as possible. Well, uh, thank you very much for that letter. And we have never mentioned, I think, The Little Rascals once doing this show. Yeah, I mean, I saw some of it when I was a kid. Me too. At like 6 a.m. on like the Cartoon Network. I've really only just kind of recently started watching The Little Rascals. Are you getting like those Blu-ray sets that are coming out? Yeah, Classic Flicks is putting out restored ones. And I've been watching some of the really early ones and and I've been enjoying them. Didn't Leonard Maltin write a book about The Little Rascals? Our gang? Leonard Maltin is like the god of The Little Rascals. He knows everything about The Little Rascals. I feel like there's a Little Rascals episode in our future. We got to dive in. Even though it's an intimidating subject, there's a lot of different versions. Malton has an anecdote in one of his books where he's like, uh, you know, there are some good versions that came out after this year, even though everybody shits on them. And it's like, oh, man, that is, you know, a fandom that I am not familiar with at all. The things that Leonard Malton has devoted his life to are sometimes they're amusing to me. It's like he spent so much time with Little Rascals. He's I think he's seen every single Disney movie ever. Wow, he was the Disney guy. He introduced all those tins that came out. He wrote this book called The Disney Movies where he he watched like every single one, like Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe or whatever, like whatever, whatever stupid garbage, you know, The Happiest Millionaire, every single bad movie. There is nothing sadder than, it was an interview, wasn't it, recently, where Leonard Maltin like talked about, oh, it was in his autobiography about how much fun he had doing those Disney things. And eventually the guy who had hired him just stopped working there and they just didn't return his calls and he's like i'll do it i, I would love to keep doing it and they're like, eh, no thank you disney if you're listening like how are not all of those letter malton intros and those packages 
included on Disney Plus because they're not. I don't believe unless they're hidden deep down in there. You know, Leonard, we love him. He was the one who figured out how to do that. He was the one who figured out how do you put the racist Disney cartoons on DVD? Because he gives them context. He does intros and they acknowledge, uh, you know, that they are racist. I mean, did they do like a set of just that? They did a set of the wartime cartoons. Like he put out there's this very famous one called Dare Fuhrer's Face. Yeah, where they're like, it will never be released ever because it was Donald Duck dreaming that the Nazis have taken over and so the whole thing is Donald Duck in a Nazi costume going Heil Hitler I can't do a Donald voice very amusing short and yeah Leonard figured out how to put it out yep and I think that now it will never be released after that I mean it's on Vimeo and like all those other places but you'll never see it officially released by Disney because they have never done anything wrong ever so as per usual you can send us letters on porn cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week on our patreon what are we talking about will we are talking about the new indian blockbuster rrr the movie on everyone's lips and you're saying that and it almost sounds sarcastic uh, no, i'm not but it's not everyone's talking about it everyone on my twitter feed is talking about it this is a movie that's taking the world by storm because it is very very entertaining and i have seen almost all of the director's films but that does not mean I have any cultural context. So $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. Also lots of, probably lots of talk about the Albion cinema, which we finally got to go back to uh, after a very long break away from it. So what are we doing next week? Next week, we're continuing our streak of comedy and we're talking about the king, the auteur of classic Hollywood comedy, Billy Frank Tashlin. Yes, <laughs> what were you going to say? Oh, I just got slapped because I laughed. You know, when I talk about auteur of comedy, usually people don't automatically go to Frank Tashlin. You thought Billy Wilder. That's yeah, what that's what saying. I was saying. Yeah, I was going towards. Now, we're going to talk about Frank Tashlin, one of those that the French loved. And why did the French love him? Well, he was the director who taught Jerry Lewis everything he ever knew. But beyond that, he's directed such films as The Girl Can't Help It, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. We're going to do an episode on Frank Tashlin and not talk about any Jerry Lewis film. Because it's too easy. It's too easy. In addition to the two films I mentioned, we should also watch Son of Paleface. Mm, the one that he wrote. Oh, no, he directed that one, right? That's right. And Roy Rogers is in it. I think it's Roy Rogers. It's Bob Hope because it's a sequel to The Pale Face. That's yeah. right. So it's you got Bob Hope. You got a Western superstar. And you got a lot of laughs. I'm finally uh, happy to get to Frank Tashlin. I have a smile on my face and a chuckle on my lips right now as I talk. Can't believe we haven't done him before. Yeah, we keep bringing him up and then he kind of gets pushed to the back as we get, you know, uh, really excited about other stuff like the Little Rascals. So until next week, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hey, you. Yes, you. You, the person listening there. Have you reviewed this show on Apple Podcast? If you have, thank you. But if you haven't, come on, get on there. You've probably enjoyed a couple episodes of this show. And me and Will would really appreciate if you got on there and you just wrote a review, gave us five stars. It would be so much appreciated. And eventually, once everybody does it, I'll be able to stop asking. But until then, get on there and review that podcast. I'd also like to thank some of our Patreon subscribers, who include Ethan Klein, Tommy Scarpinato, Adam Bonfanti, and Mary Taggart. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. Do you want your name read out by me? Well, become a Patreon subscriber now, and I will do it on an upcoming episode. And now, back to your regular scheduled programming. I've been flipping through a new book by Ed Glazer. Maybe it's Ed Glazer. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's called How the World Remade Hollywood. And it's this new book that McFarland has put out about foreign remakes, foreign ripoffs, you know, Turkish Spider-Man, Turkish Superman, or Turkish Star Wars, stuff like that. There's also like a Russian Avengers ripoff. 
Uh, so many movies have been made over the course of like 60 years. I actually really like this writer. I'm happy that he's finally putting out books because he's like the king of like Turkish stuff. He's the one who found a print of Turkish Star Wars. And he put it on Blu-ray. Uh, perhaps. We were not sure how this Blu-ray uh, came out of The Man Who Saved the World, which is not available anymore. But yeah, he could maybe have something to do with it. Heroic work. And I've I've really been enjoying the book. It's very scrupulously researched. I mean, you know, when I was first finding out about these movies like Turkish Superman, which would just take footage from the Richard Donner Superman film and take the music, you know, have very rock bottom special effects, as you can imagine. I would think like, how did they get away with that? How, well, no one cared. No one was looking in Turkey at the movies that they were making. You know, he does a very good introduction that explains why did these people not get sued? You know, just really gives a lot of context for all the movies. He's interviewed a lot of the crew who made some of these movies. So there are good anecdotes about sort of the economics of it. Anyway, it did inspire me to watch one such film. I watched uh, Golden Boy, which was a movie that came out in Turkey in 1966, and it's a Turkish James Bond ripoff. Mm. It often circulates in bootlegs under the name Turkish James Bond. I had a good time watching it. I won't pretend there weren't some lulls, but it was under 90 minutes, which is more than I can say for any of the Bond movies. It's in black and white, and instead of the beautiful Ken Adams sets, instead of the beautiful exotic locations, it's you know, wherever they were in Turkey that day. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes they're in a they're in a room. Very early. Are trampolines involved? There are no trampolines. Oh. But it has a lot of the Bondian elements. You know, like the villain is a bald guy with a cat that he strokes. Everyone calls the hero the golden boy, which is, is funny to me. It's got, you know, traps and glamorous women. And actually, I, I learned from reading the book that this was a more expensive than usual Turkish production of the time. They wanted to make a movie that would deserve the mantle of being the Turkish James Bond. And so they actually did film in more than one country. There's a whole section of the movie that's shot in London. Whoa! And you see Hello, the- mate. You see the golden boy driving past Buckingham Palace, driving on London Bridge. Oh, is that it? And then he goes back to Turkey? Well, he spends a little time in London, but he does a lot of driving. In fact, you see a lot of driving in Turkey as well. And uh, it reminded me, this this is actually why the movie is the Turkish James Bond, because you look at those early Sean Connery Bond movies, and so much time is just spent, like, on nothing. So much time is spent just just being boring and wallowing in the coolness of James Bond. Because that's why those films are two and a half hours long, because you wouldn't have a 90-minute film. That's like a B program. Well, you know, if you watch You Only Live Twice, there's that whole scene towards the end of the movie where it's in the villain's uh, secret underground volcano lair, and... I swear, it's like 15 minutes of just looking at the lair. There is nothing that kills me more anytime James Bond goes underwater. I'm like, no! Oh, Thunderball. A slower film is going to go to an even glacial pace. So yeah, there is a scuba diving scene in in Golden Boy, but it's not so bad. In fact, you can tell that they actually cut in footage from like a scuba documentary or something. So that I like. Because when you look at those remakes, what you're looking for is like kind of the movie, but off and the more off it is, the better it is. Because otherwise, it could just be another Euro spy film. Exactly. Does it get you excited for any other remakes that you've read in the book? That you're like, I got to write this down. I got to check it out at some point. Oh, I'm going to watch all of them at some point. Except I mean, maybe that Russian Avengers one, because that's new. So yeah, yeah, it's probably not as fun. No, uh, I am excited that I have not checked this book out yet. I think I have it on order somewhere. McFarland books, they're so expensive. They're too and you expensive. have to order usually from them as well to be able to get it. But listen, if it gets money in the pockets of the people writing, like, I guess that's good, right? Because yeah. it's a very niche subject, a lot of these. 
I mean, this guy spent so much time working on this book. Like, he interviewed people? That's bananas. I want to support him, yeah. Because it could have easily been like, this is a synopsis of the movie. Isn't this wild? Because that's what you would expect a book like that to be, and it sounds like it's not. I recommend it. Are you going to be watching the movie that stars Sean Connery's brother? Okay, Connery. I'm sure you've seen it already, right? I've seen it because it was on Mystery Science Theater. Oh, okay. It also goes under the title Operation Kid Brother. It was a movie that was made at the height of Bond mania, and it stars Neil Connery, brother of Sean Connery, who plays uh, the brother of our greatest secret agent. And it has, I think, Lois Maxwell is in it, who played Moneypenny in all the movies. At least one or two of the Bond villains are in it. And it's bad. 